Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and David Nicandri. And I've titled this show, Inconsistencies. And you talk about Jefferson and slavery, amongst other things. David Nicandri and I are both deeply committed to the Enlightenment with a capital E. It was that intellectual period between 1680 and around 1830 focused on reason, the amelioration of the condition of mankind, a belief in the goodness of humanity, and a new era of skepticism. But the question is, was the Enlightenment hollow? And we look at the question of Jefferson and race, Jefferson and women, Jefferson and Native Americans. What are the paradoxes or the inconsistencies in the Enlightenment, and do they discredit it? Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, one of the things that's always fascinated me about you is your love of science. I wish I could bring you to my time for a day or two, sir. And and it's said that within the last 50 years, 50% of the knowledge of mankind has come to the forefront. I don't doubt that a bit. You know, we were born in the age of the Enlightenment, and we thought that the future would be rich in science and discovery and technology, and that humans were barely scratching the surface of what there was to know you know, we were a landlocked planet, and our telescopes, although impressive, did not reach very far, and we had no electronic um, devices, spectrometers, or anything else. And so we were feeling our way with microscopes and telescopes into a better understanding of the cosmos. But we knew that if those things had happened in our era, what was to come was going to shock the world with all of the infinite variety of things. And I'm sorry I didn't live to see some of that, but I knew that this would not only deepen our understanding of the world, but it would help to ameliorate the condition of mankind, that each of these seemingly abstract discoveries or devices had practical benefits that would come to make life better for everyone. There is one thing that I would very much like to share with you and, and, and share images, but there's a, there's a new telescope that has been launched into space. And this telescope, because it's so far from the Earth and the abilities it has, it's really almost a time machine because we can look so far out, we can see light that will not reach the Earth. We barely understood the idea of the light year. In other words, that light travels enormous distances at uh, something like 186,000 miles per second. And that that means that if you're looking at light from some distant planet or star, you're looking, in a sense, into the past. That light emerged at some previous point. We barely understood this. Remember that it was in 1781, when I was in early middle age, that William Herschel discovered Uranus, the seventh planet. And so we were We're living in a world that's still largely thought in terms of biblical time, that the earth might be a few thousand years old. And so we were, I was, I think it's fair to say, uh, wallowing in profound ignorance 
about these things. I'm told that this new telescope cost billions of dollars, a concept that I can't even embrace. Uh, you know, I sent the Lewis and Clark expedition to the Pacific for $2,500. So this sort of concept uh, startles me. I wonder if you have a balanced budget. But if you are spending that kind of money on pure science, this is an extraordinary monument to the genius of the American people that they believe in science to the point of taxing themselves at such a level. Well, that may be another discussion, but I, I do agree with you. I should point out that it's not just the United States. It's nations from all over the world that are participating in this. Do you trust them? In these scientific matters, sir, I do. Finally, sir, I, I, I must ask, I know you had a lot of what we call gadgets or scientific uh, pieces of equipment. Did you have a telescope and, and did you? scan the skies. Of course, of course I did. I had telescopes from an early time and, and, and bought new ones uh, whenever I could. You know, I wanted to observe the transit of Venus, which occurred twice during my lifetime, once as a famous international event. And I also uh, used theodolites and sextants and octants to determine latitude and longitude. I'm at the end of my life when the University of Virginia was being built about five miles below the mountain at Monticello, I used a, a, a telescope, what you would call a spotting scope, to, to watch the progress of the bricklaying and the laying of the foundations there when I could not ride my horse down to see it in person. I must figure out a way to get these images to you so you may see them yourself. I would be very much delighted to see them. You know, I said once, it's possible that the, that the world is 60,000 years old. So you can imagine how this would um, shock my sensibilities. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkins, and today, a one-on-one -on -one interview with our favorite Enlightenment guest, Dave Nicandri. Dave Nicandri is formerly the executive director of the Washington State Historical Society. He's a writer with a special interest in Captain James Cook and also an interest in Lewis and Clark, which is how we have known each other now for a very long time. We like to say we're members of something called the Republic of Letters. You've heard Dave on this program during the transit of Venus, during the great eclipse. Uh, whenever there's something in the in the world of enlightenment science, I immediately think of you, Dave. So welcome to this edition of the Jefferson Hour. Thanks, Clay. It's always a pleasure to be with you. So here's my subject for today. The Enlightenment and the Founding Fathers have been under a great deal of critical scrutiny lately. And of course, you know what's happened in the world of Thomas Jefferson, how he's essentially become the poster child for the unresolved race questions and slavery questions of early American history. Whether that's fully deserved or not um, is an interesting question, but it's certainly the case. He's come down in the world to the point where people can actually talk about dismantling the Jefferson Memorial. This is not a great time for the third president 
of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. But this is part and parcel of a much larger critique of early America, a slaveholding society, a nation that could say all men are created equal and yet own hundreds of thousands of them, buy them and sell them, whip them, rape them, kill them under certain circumstances. Uh, the founding fathers get such high marks for their love of of natural rights and human liberty, and yet they were somewhat complacent about uh, the dynamic of enslaving hundreds of thousands of, of human beings. And the institutions that look at these things, and particularly our elite universities, are increasingly critical in a very severe way of not only these people like Jefferson, but also about the Enlightenment itself. And one of their arguments, Dave, is that if people like Jefferson can talk the way they talked and yet live like exploiters of other human beings, maybe all of this Enlightenment talk was just talk. Maybe it doesn't have any real value except as a kind of self-complacency amongst the Founding Fathers. So I'll, there's a lot there, but I want to pick it up there. And I know you have personal experience with the Academy because you have been uh, on the Board of Readers of Evergreen um, College in your own state. So let's start anywhere you want with this. I, I think this is one of the most interesting phenomena of our time and one of the most problematic. Well, let's start with the Enlightenment itself. I consider it to be the high point of human development. Ever. Ever. Not that there haven't been significant things done, but the most significant things done since then are direct outgrowth of Enlightenment era phenomena. Let's just take one example. Modern medical science, understanding the biology and the chemistry uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of, the, of the human species, of all species, is a direct outgrowth of uh, breakthroughs uh, in Enlightenment science, uh, principally uh, in the 18th century. So from roughly 1680 until 1800, something like that, a European intellectual movement, a political movement, a social movement. The Enlightenment has to be considered within the context of from what it emerged and to what's come after. History is a continuum. It's not a fixed point in time or a fixed notion. So context is everything. So the Enlightenment represents the, the, the liberation of inquiry not circumscribed by religion. In fact, skepticism of religion and, and dog, religious, religious dogma is one of the highlights. Skepticism does not necessarily mean disbelief. Nor antipathy. Skepticism is an attitude of questioning and of not accepting anything without further inquiry. Right. So enlightenment thinking enabled people to... Um, worship as they please. In the economic sphere, the Enlightenment created a free market system. I Adam mean, Smith. one of them, Adam Smith, exactly. I mean, because of Enlightenment economic thinking. So, uh, so there's that. There's, there's the notion of abiding by the rule of law. Due process, the yeah. rule of law, the rights of man. Yes, or the fact that we elect people who make decisions whose votes are recorded publicly and who are, at least nominally speaking, held into account on the base of their voting record. Now, there's, there's a great line from the Wilsonian era, which is not what we're talking about, 
uh, the progressive era, Wilson's great line, which I apply somewhat anachronistically in this context, open covenants openly arrived at. That is a, that's Wilson's phrase, but it's an enlightenment era notion. And, and we kind of take that, we take that as, as for example, by, by way of contrast, a king simply deciding, well, we're going to invade, we're going to go on a quest to conquer Jerusalem. Or, or a bishop uh, saying, uh, uh, the, the only way you can get any um, succor in an emergency is to, is to plead to the local bishop. Um, uh, and so the, the idea of personal autonomy, self-autonomy, the very notion that that all cult, all cultures have values. The rise of, of equal, comparative culture. Yeah, they're not all of equal value. And I don't believe all cultures are of equal value, quite honestly, but they all have some value. So there's all these notions that became kind of ambient in our lifetime. But now many of them are, at a minimum, they're taken for granted. And some aspects of this are actually are under actual assault. I think that the Enlightenment, strictly speaking, chronologically speaking, replaced a kind of a medieval view of the world where a, a handful of key individuals dictated everything, uh, monarchs, nobility, again, religious figures, uh, and that uh, their will, whatever they said, went, you know, uh, and... Um, uh, and you, to, in order to survive, you had to be in the good graces of such individuals. And somewhat alarmingly, Clay, I find in the post-enlightenment world that some people seem to be bringing on willingly. I mean, something like the enlightenment sensibility is is in, is endangered to begin with because we know all of what preceded it. We know that we can. We know that we can slip back. And actually, in the last ten years or so, we've been surprised at how how rapid that slippage can be. Yes, and so I guess my concluding observation, and we can go back into this talk chapter and verse, but the bottom, the summary of that whole riff is that uh, pre-enlightenment values are re-emerging in our culture, and it's a damn scary thing. Now, let me give you two quick examples, both famous. Um, Voltaire is said to have said. Madam, I disagree with what you say, but I shall defend to the death your right to say it. That idea that there's a free marketplace of ideas, that no ideas are sacred, that everything must be looked at with reason and a level of skepticism, uh, that there are no uh, taboos in human discourse, and that we refine ideas and reach the truth by dialogue, by um, dispute, by conversation. So that's one. And Jefferson was certainly right at the heart of that principle. Um, the other one is is uh, equally famous when George III heard that George Washington had resigned his commission and retired back to Mount Vernon. He said, if this is true, he's the greatest man in the world. Because before that, and even then with Napoleon, you see that the person who becomes the great military leader um, almost never relinquishes power. Almost always they consolidate power, they, they torture or eliminate their rivals. Uh, and, and they take on dictatorial capacities and try to pass them on to their own family, if possible. And suddenly, born out of the Enlightenment, the United States of America produces this hero by any standard, George Washington, 
who has power and renounces power and does, in fact, uh, retreat to his farm um, at Mount Vernon. These are examples of how the Enlightenment was an intoxicating movement as well as a liberating one. Well, first of all, I think we need to make a clear distinction. Uh, there are nuances in, uh, uh, in this. No one is making a brief, I'm certainly not, that taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee, that's not the same thing as a statue to Thomas Jefferson, is what I mean to say. There's, there's an important distinction to be made here between these two individuals, just to take two Virginians for an example. Well, we could go to several others. Wait, wait make, the, make the distinction, because there will be people who don't know how to make that distinction. Well, uh, the distinction is that there are other redemptive values to some of these people. George Washington, the courage of Washington, and the, no, and the nobility and the generic, the, the sense you know that I mean it, uh, of well-meaning, uh, of, 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 of uh, the gesture of a well-esteemed man. That's Jefferson. There's the intellectual, the sagacity of Thomas Jefferson and his ability to write. There's the political skill of a James Madison. And then there's Benjamin Franklin. So those four people are the key figures. John Adams, I guess you got to. So those are the key, those are the key five figures. So we, we have this country largely created through the courage, sagacity, political maneuverability of these individuals. That's a, that's a heck of an accomplishment. Um, but those three, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, the Virginians, of course, are all, they've all gone into eclipse because they were also slaveholders. And that needs to be noted. And it's, it's long been noted. I mean, one of the things that kind of troubles me about modern discourse is that it's somehow a revelation that people have just discovered that Jefferson, Washington, Madison were slaveholders. I mean, I mean, I suppose at one time that was brushed away, but not in the 20th century that you and I have lived in. Everyone knew this. So there, there's, there's kind of a falseness to a lot of this dialogue here. But it, but it goes beyond the founders, Clay, whether slaveholders or not. And that's the distinction I'm making with Robert E. Lee. Right? Lee can't compete. On, I mean, he's, he's a traitor, basically, and a slaveholder. We're going to take a short break. We're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with my friend Dave Nicandri, formerly the executive director of the Washington State Historical Society, now a well-published historian. When we come back, I want to ask you further about the perceived hollowness of the Enlightenment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. It's my one-on-one interview with my old and dear friend Dave Nicandri. We're both lovers of the Enlightenment, the rule of law, taxonomy, uh, the classification of the sciences, um, exploration and discovery, um, the invention of oxygen or the discovery of oxygen, uh, encyclopedias and almanacs, latitude and longitude, Um, And the belief that humans are born with rights and that even if it's a monarchy, the monarchy must pay respect to the people, uh, that it's accountable in some sense to the people and in the more extreme form of the American Republic, that the people are sovereign and they get to choose their own rulers. All of that and much more in the Enlightenment. And as you said, Dave, there's no single Enlightenment. There's a German Enlightenment and there's a Scottish Enlightenment and there's an English Enlightenment and there is a... Uh, French Enlightenment, and of course there's an American Enlightenment. The two great figures of it are Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, but they are by no means the only figures. Uh, David Rittenhouse is another. Charles Wilson Peale is another. Still, Albert Gallatin, the great Secretary of the Treasury for Jefferson, wrote a pioneering classification of Native American languages, and so on. However, at the moment the Enlightenment is, if not on the ropes, It's certainly under attack, and you know better than I that in our colleges, especially our elite colleges, there has been something like an anti-enlightenment insurrection led by some of the most brilliant faculty members of our time who are fed up with it, and they believe that it's a a sham and a fraud and that it privileges uh, racism, it, it privileges the hierarchy of different varieties of humankind, that it was a in a sense, a a defense mechanism for the exploitation of the earth, the exploitation of indigenous peoples, uh, that there's a a gender hollowness at its core, there's a race hollowness at its core, and in the end, it really just is a cover for the the same old power uh, human dynamics that have existed from the beginning of time. And you have seen at Evergreen, and others have seen at Reed or Columbia or other places, not only intellectual assaults, on the ideas of the Enlightenment, but sometimes physical assaults. So what do you make of this kind of nihilist function uh, amongst the academic elite in this country? Having once been a campus radical myself, there's, a, there's no small irony to this, uh, but I, I felt uh, physical intimidation at a, at a board meeting. There was uh, what could only be described as a... Uh, an attempt at instituting mob rule on campus. There was literally a, kind of like a posse out looking for people. They armed themselves with bats and, uh, and they kind of created checkpoints. I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm prone to exaggeration, but really what I want to do here is just simply grasp upon a metaphor, uh, not to be taken to its extreme, but I felt like I had my own little encounter with, with the dynamic of the Red Guards in China. Or the reign, the reign of terror in France. Yes, yes. Now, no one was killed. There was no guillotine at the Evergreen State College. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not being ludicrous. But I saw the seed time, Clay, of what that kind of, dy- what that kind of dynamic and movement can lead to. And I, I found it uh, not a little frightening. So that that's my that's my personal encounter, and we'll 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 kind of we'll kind of leave it there. 
And I don't mean to go into the great details on this, Dave, and I, uh, I apologize for interrupting, but I, I want to just go back to, and emphasize this for a moment, that this isn't just people saying, I have a principled disagreement with certain courses on this campus or uh, styles of certain professors or certain types of publication or certain even ideals and doctrines. This is saying, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to forbid certain types of discourse on this campus. There is an orthodoxy, and if you don't meet it, you could have sterling credentials. You could be a tenured faculty member. You could be a person with great publications. You could be a person who's a liberal. But if you step over a line that you may or may not know because it's never been articulated, if you step over a line that may or may not have been clearly articulated, we may destroy you. Yes, and that and that's probably a part of it that uh, was so palpable during the whole uh, sequence. The preponderance of the faculty, and certainly the students, did not agree with this behavior. We're talking about a minority, a vanguard, if you will. I'll call it like it is, a self-styled revolutionary vanguard that took over. But here, this was this was the frightening part play, and I. I've, I find myself having succumbed to it, uh, in part, a, a fearfulness to speak out against it. And the moment in history that came to me while this was all playing out on campus is that famous episode that I've seen portrayed a couple times theatrically, uh, referring to Edward R. Murrow and the, his uh, uh, CBS reports on uh, uh, McCarthy's uh, shenanigans, the junior senator from Wisconsin as Edward R. Murrow referred to him repeatedly that night. But there's a pre-meeting in the CBS News studio about whether to take on McCarthy. And, and Fred Friendly and, and Edward R. Murrow and a couple of those, should we really do this or not? And at one point, Murrow says, we have to do this because the fear is in this room. That's excellent. And that is what is going on writ large at campuses all across the country. People are afraid to speak out against the new orthodoxy, which is the very notion play of orthodox is the quintessential anti-enlightenment doctrine, that there should be something as orthodoxy. I mean, I'm just aghast verbalizing this, but that's where we find ourselves, because if anything, enlightenment thinking is heterodox by nature. That's the whole point. That's how we uh, developed uh, uh, Western civilization over the last couple hundred years. So anyway, so sociologically or anthropologically, that's the, under, that's the dynamic that's going on. A lack of willingness to confront it when people know it's wrong, but no one really wants to say anything. So it just gains momentum. We're talking about a relatively minor part of our university world at most campuses, for most purposes, things are about what they have been. There is a high level of um, civility, and uh, courses are new and, and innovative that wouldn't have even been dreamed of in the 1950s, and they've done extremely important work excavating uh, lost voices, uh, underserved constituencies, uh, oppressed peoples, colonialized peoples, I mean, on the whole, this has been a very good thing. It's the American Cultural Revolution. And I would say that, take it all around, it's been one of the great 
things that's happened in the course of my lifetime, that we broke the old paradigm. We broke the, the white, male, racist uh, hierarchy uh, of establishment culture that was smug and it was indifferent to those other voices. It created canons of literature and, and, and other books that were, were chosen to represent what Western civilization is. Uh, it, was, it was very much Eurocentric. Um, and all of those things were problems, and they desperately needed to be addressed. And the 60s came along, and we had a cultural revolution. And, and I think we're infinitely better now, more nuanced, more thoughtful, more inclusive, more honest about history than we have ever been. So I don't want us to be seeming like two old white guys who feel like they're uh, being persecuted by the young Turks who are, uh, are these um, angry leftists. That's a, that would be a, a, a gross oversimplification of the truth. At the same time, those very people who have pioneered the new studies and excavated the lost voices, some of them have become intolerant and they want to burn the past and they want to blame the people they believe are the perpetrators of those false concepts of, of history, literature, philosophy, and theology. And what strikes me as so strange about it is that, as you say, they're missing the very heart and center of what the Enlightenment is, which is that everything belongs on the table, even when it's abhorrent to my moral sensibility, even when it, it, it offends me deeply, even when it's counter to everything that I thought I knew. It has to be on the table because uh, for two reasons. First of all, that's how discourse refines itself. And secondly... Who gets to be the guardians? Who gets to make those decisions? You know, Jefferson wisely said, we need guardians, but who will protect us from our guardians? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the difference between the 1960s and 70s, which are kind of, which are our formative eras, uh, fairly put, and now, is that my sense, Clay, is that we thought of this as additive elements. Let's add more. Let's bring more to the table. Let's diversify. Let's get new voices. And, and there's cert that's certainly a strong aspect of what's going on now, too. But the problematic part is the exclusionary notes. We can't have any of X, Y, or Z, whatever it might be. That is just simply taboo. And I think that is what people find problematic. I'm not opposed to adding new voices, greater diversity of perspective. All, that's quintessentially uh, an enlightenment aspect, but excluding previous canons from, from, from study, uh, certain topical areas, that is where the modern, what I'm calling neo-progressivism, that's the problem we've gotten into lately. So you made the case in our first segment today that we need to take the whole man or whole person theory, that Jefferson is more than his problems of race and uh, displacement of Native Americans and his sexism and so on. Uh, that Washington is more than whatever the rap on Washington is and so on. That we have to look at the overall life, the achievement of the, the accumulated body of their work, and that we need to maintain some sense of balance and fairness in all of this. I certainly agree with that. I, I, I wholeheartedly subscribe to the whole man, the whole person theory. However, when you think of Jefferson, whom I love, and I think you do too, 
knowing better, perpetuating slavery, buying and selling slaves, sleeping with one of them, fathering children by one at least, certainly one, um, having his escaped slaves tracked down and brought back and, and, and beaten and whipped, uh, letting a subject people live in squalor all, while he lives in a Palladian mansion, um, writing those heroic words about the rights of man and, and, and human possibility, sometimes using the word slavery, not in its real sense, but to talk about the, the colonists' enslavement to the British crown and that kind of fundamental misuse of the word slavery. When you add all this up, this is very difficult to stomach. And, and there are days when I wake up and I think I want, and I, I know this sounds crazy, but there are days when I wake up and I think I want nothing further to do with this man, that he's a contemptible hypocrite, that that he uh, not only lived this way with this whopping inconsistency at the heart of his life, but he lived pretty calmly with it. And there's very little psychological fallout from it that we can see. And in addition to that, he convinced everyone around him, from Madison to Humboldt to Joseph Priestley, uh, never to bring it up, that, that somehow there was a tacit agreement, a never stated agreement that we were going to give Jefferson a pass on the question of slavery, that, that it would hurt his feelings if we brought it up, that he's too refined to live in the sordid world in which we would really challenge him in this way. And so when you add all that up, I think, the, of course I believe that Jefferson did more for civilization than, than the bad things about him. At the same time, Dave, I think not only does he have a lot to answer for, but there are times when it's hard to take him fully seriously because of this. This isn't like not recycling or, you know, using a gas engine instead of an electric car or you know, um, shopping um, at only the finest stores and knowing that, that many of those things were made by uh, labor in, in, in armed camps in, in Taiwan. This is a, a, an obvious, right-in-your-face, visceral violation of, the, of one of the central concepts of the Enlightenment, and he lived with it with, with extraordinary complacency, in my view. Yep. Yeah, the hypocrisy is almost uh, immeasurable when you compare what he wrote and uh, how he lived his life, or at least that aspect of his life. I can't controvert, uh, even for the sake of argument, anything you said, it's all true. But what comes to mind, Clay, is that, uh, I, and again, I'm a, I, I, I'm a big lover of irony, you know that, you are too. One of the ironic aspects of this is that the Enlightenment within itself contained the seed of a thought that actually leads us to this moment. And it's the very notion of the perfectibility of man. That is where this is all coming from. In other words, there's the notion that's ambient now in contemporary times, that it's possible to lead a perfect life, that someone in the second day third decade, no, yeah, third decade of the 21st century can look back at someone living in the 18th with their own smugness and self-assuranceness that I'm, I'm living a perfect life in existence and I can look back upon these individuals and see, and see and determine that they've fallen short. That outlook is, is in fact an enlightenment perspective. 
that there's a better way of comporting oneself and leading a life. I mean, no one believed that before the Enlightenment. Uh, that just wasn't part of the worldview. I mean, uh, there were problems, uh, uh, again, in the medieval era, human, humans were a fallen species. Or if I'm now using Dante's term, biblical terminology. And the Enlightenment scoffed at that and suggested, certainly, I'm not sure it's the Declaration or the, I guess it's the, um, the, uh, the Constitution itself has the phrase, a more perfect union. Right. I mean, um, that, by the way, is an Enlightenment ambition and goal that is possible to always have a more perfect union. But there's kind of a utopian aspect to all of that. And I think that's what informs the judgmentalism, the sanctimonious about all this. So let me put it another way, Clay, maybe more visceral. Do some of the most severest critics of Jefferson, Washington, Lincoln, Cook, do they think they've led such an exemplary life that 100 years from now someone would look back, look back upon what they've done? and found it uh, short of, uh, of a life well-lived, or maybe more generally, referring to eras and epochs rather than a single individual. Well, let me, let me take another try. I am sure, speaking as a historian, Clint, I am sure there are things we, even sensible with it, po modern, postmodern people, there are things we do today conventionally, on a quotidian basis, that 100, 500, 1,000 years from now, people will look back on our time, the third decade of the, of the 21st century, and they'll say, how on earth could those people have thought X, Y, or Z? I have some thoughts about some of those things that, that, uh, that, that, that might fall within that penumbra. But that's what I mean by the sanctimoniousness and the, tendentiousness, the smugness, uh, is the presumption that the modern, or as it truly is the postmodern vantage point, is the ultimate evolution of human perspective. And that is so fraught as a notion as to invite ridicule, although these people take themselves all too seriously. We're going to take a short break. We're listening to a very special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour one-on-one -on -one with Dave McCandry, talking about the Enlightenment and its critics. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special one-on-one edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm with Dave McCandry. Dave, I want to talk about original sin. You know, we, we ended the last segment with you um, questioning our own righteousness of our time, uh, believing somehow that we have reached a level of perfection that um, has never been achieved before and that, and that we have a right to cast judgments all around it reminds me of what jesus said you know beware of the log in your eye before you point out the moat in another uh i do think i often when i'm in this mode of thinking wonder what will they say of us what will they say of us and it's not it's not a pretty picture i think you know because we we might be actually extinguishing the human experiment you know so the stakes are higher than they've ever been if the climate change people are as accurate as they appear to be. So the Enlightenment rejected the notion of original sin. Not everyone, of course, but the the wilder people like Condorcet and Jefferson and Thomas Paine had this notion that uh, if we just um, jettisoned the past, maybe had an ocean between us and the past, uh, started the world over again in some sense in a wilderness, a new capital in Washington, a new capital in Richmond, a new nation in a wilderness, the United States, that we could get it right this time. You know, Payne famously said, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And they rejected the notion that there's an inherent flaw, that there's a deep structural inherent DNA flaw in humanity. And people like St. Paul and St. Augustine said, it's original sin and it's an inheritance from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Enlightenment would never have believed that, but it could believe that there's something in human nature that is irredeemable. And people like John Adams, for example, were flabbergasted by Jefferson's sense of perfection and said, have you looked around? I mean, have you really looked around at all? Because that's not the way the world works at all. I remember seeing Jacob Bronowski's magnificent uh, series on the ascent of man. Uh, You probably saw it in your youth and in the last of all the episodes this great, magnificent polymath and humanist and scientist, um, Jakob Bronowski, is standing at Auschwitz, and he talks about the human experiment, and then he reaches down and picks up this pile of muck, this mud, and he says, and this too, and this too is man. That seems irrefutable to me, that this too is man. Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Nagasaki... Putin's attack on Ukraine, the Holocaust, the carnage of World War I, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me that there is no honest observation of humanity that doesn't find something deeply disappointing. It's almost become trite, a man's inhumanity to man. But it's such a persistent pattern. One could easily see how that Augustinian Pauline version took such hold. These key enlightenment figures, Jefferson would be the one that you and I know best. Someone like Jefferson, to say nothing of John Adams, would be astonished to imagine that the country that in large measure they invented would find itself where religious rhetoric and symbolism is just simply it's possible to strip it from public life. I mean, we ourselves have seen the power of that rhetoric. You see it in Lincoln, and we have seen it in our own lifetime 
with the with the uh, uh, with the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This rhetoric and 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 the symbols behind it have tremendous remediative capability that mere power does not. This, of course, is the great lesson of Jesus, of Gandhi, of, of King himself. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's not their strength, but their willingness to parlay their weakness that gives them influence over society. So, but that's not the way we certainly know that's not the way the Chinese Communist Party works. That's not the way Putin works. Increasingly, that's not the way modern American society works either. I mean, we have this astonishing dynamic going on in this country where the, the influence of these technology oligarchs on the one hand, or corporate oligarchs more generally, at one end of the spectrum, and then you have these, well, we see them here where I live here in uh, Western Washington, these uh, mobs of Antifa uh, renegades shouting down public meetings and, and haranguing officials. It's just simply become a power game. Open covenants openly arrived at, civil dialogue. Uh, that, that almost seems quaint now by, by comparison to uh, the, these things that are pulling us apart as a civilization. So I don't, I don't want to get into the fall of Adam, which, which is clearly a metaphor, but it, it speaks to a larger truth that I've, I've more than hinted at, which is that the perfectibility of man is an illusion and that the sooner we disabuse ourselves of that, the better off we'll all be, and that we commit ourselves to the moderating influences of the Enlightenment, and the sooner we do that, the better off we'll be. Here's what Jefferson would say to this. Not in all of his moods, because he wasn't an any, but he would say, well, Dave, how hard have we really tried? I mean, we've inherited all these habits from Europe. These really are more social constructs than they are really embedded features of the human DNA. What if we really educated people and what if we liberated them from priestcraft and superstition and false truths and so on and kept them close to nature? Um, this sounds a little bit like Rousseau now, but what if we really gave humanity a chance and worked systematically to jettison the oppressive habits that have held us back? Do we know how good it could be if we really committed ourselves to it when, in fact, we have largely just accepted uh, centuries-old habits that we know distort and destroy? So, for example, the American people have this love affair with British royalty. To this day, it's insane, in my opinion. Here we are, a republic that jettisoned this idea in a very emphatic way in 1776. And yet, here in the 21st century, 80 million people will tune in to watch a royal wedding and a royal birth. There's like a, there are like doomsday clocks on all the news. It's two hours from birth. Well, what will they name the child? You know, etc. And I and I know that's a trivial example, but but it is and it isn't. My point is that these habits die hard, and that's why Robespierre and the Soviets and 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 Mao wanted to use violence to cleanse the slate because they knew that if you don't use violence to cleanse the slate, 
that those old habits of, of the bourgeois habits will will bite us again. Some of that can be written off, Clay, by an equally but different foible of our country, which is fascination with celebrity. I mean, the, the British royal family is just kind of a distant version of the Kardashians at some level. Just uh, <laughs> that's everyone's. You've offended everyone now. You've offended the royals. You've offended the Kardashians. So here, here's my, the, my second take at this, Clay. I'm not saying that improvement and progress along the road to for perfectibility is not worth undertaking. And there can be and there have been improvements. We've seen them in our own lifetime in this country. I, I guess maybe where I disagree with the, the utopianist element of enlightenment thought that I fear sometimes you subscribe to. I do. Is, is that we that there that that ultimate perfectibility is achievable. And in that sense, you can put me in the class with um, St. Augustine and St. Paul. I don't believe that's possible. I mean, how much how much time do we need as a species to indicate that we're probably never going to get there? So let's Let's create the guardrails and the moderating influences that put a damper on our worst tendencies as a species and just keep making progress, but don't operate under the illusion that any one of us at any one point is in a position to judge uh, moral quality of our peers in, in contemporary life. Well, of course, I'm not. Uh, with Condorcet, that the 10th epoch will be human perfectibility. It's in our hands to determine it. I guess you could, you could, uh, you could say that, um, uh, or would you agree that Jefferson was a providentialist? Did he agree, agreed from time to time that some strange things happened that are otherwise uh, uh, explainable, kind of hand of God kind of, moments happen from time to time or is that unfair i think he would say that that's i think he i mean he certainly he had that band of brothers you know that this american exceptionalist notion but i think he would say if we gave it enough thought science would show us what the truth is behind those tropes that that jefferson was a physicist not a metaphysical man uh, i think he believed that secular humanity can do it can do it by itself uh, but that it's going to take a hell of a lot of public education. And as I as I say, I I think the trip is worth taking. I'm just not confident that humanity will ever get there. I think I think that sums up my outlook on the subject. Well, a key Jeffersonian concept is that we can be our best selves, and I know what my best self looks like, and I'm guessing you know what your best self looks like. And I think a lot of it is happening recently in your life, and I think a lot of it is happening recently in mine, which is some consolation for the aging process, I think. But you also know that you're not, even you, even the famous Dave Nicandri is not always his best self. And I certainly could give from my life when I know I'm not my best self, and it's actually a fair amount of the time, I would say. And I know the difference, too. And so Jefferson, who was a student of the Scottish Enlightenment, believed that we always know our best self, we always know what the right thing to do is, and all we have to do is hearken to it and then exercise that muscle, that conscience, that moral sense. And that if we will do that, we may not be Gandhi or Leonardo da Vinci or Carl Sagan. 
but we can get so much closer than we are. And you and I should be encouraging each other that we should, that our duty in life, if you want to live in a republic, is to encourage the best self in others to be forgiving when they can't do it, but never to settle and never to wander into the the abyss for the fun of it. Here's what I'd say about that, Clay. It could be that if some of what we're living through is just simply an un, an unfortunate cycle in history, uh, and you've already you've already alluded to part of it, because there, I, I I guess I sense a distinct loss of optimism in the American people, if not the the the, the enlightened world more generally. I mean, how how much worse can it get? And I think if you look at history, look at the Second World War, the Holocaust, uh, the slaughter in uh, Rwanda, uh, any number of episodes through him in history, it can, it can get pretty dark. So th w this is not an optimistic era or, or mode we're going through. And that might be informing uh, part of our, our dialogue here. But We've we've there have been other optimistic times and, and relatively recently. I mean, um, uh, in our own lives, I mean, I think of uh, John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s in a different sort of way with the uh, uh, Ray, early Reagan era. We haven't had much of that late, but there's some. Uh, uh, and this goes back to the the fault line of the perfectibility argument, which is that, and, and, it's, and it's, it's actually one of Barack Obama's favorite seasons. He's the one that kind of popularized being on the right side of history. Or the, it, it, um, history is a, is a cyclical pattern, not linear. And I think we're unqualifiedly in a downtick uh, I mean, all this business is going on in, in Ukraine, and uh, uh, I mean, uh, we would have, I think we both would have thought we'll never live through another war in Europe again, yet here we are. So, but the problem is bigger than that. So I think we're definitely going through a downtick, uh, but we know, or at least I, I subscribe to the fact that history is cyclical. That it, that it can turn, that it, that it is ultimately in our hands. I don't think it's going to, we're going to achieve utopia, but it can be darn better than it has been and that it is now. That I do agree with. I couldn't agree more. So I guess I want to just end our really interesting conversation by saying this. You know, people like Ann Coulter, uh, whom I loathe, um, have been uh, shouted down and, and, and refused entry and, and so on to university settings. Um, and this, this whole kind of cancel culture, uh, this kind of uh, righteous uh, refusal to listen to the other side um, is so deeply troubling to me. And I want to defend Ann Coulter's right to speak at Berkeley because I want to defend Emma Goldman's right to have spoken. I want to defend uh, Clarence Darrow's right to have spoken, Eugene Debs' right to have spoken. Uh, I want to defend Karl Marx's right to be heard. And there was a time when they were not allowed to speak their minds because there was an orthodoxy on the other side that was punitive and persecutory. 
And so now that the orthodox in American culture is essentially the left, it behooves the left to understand how important it is that the other side have a chance to compete in the free marketplace of ideas. It ennobles everybody, it enables us to sort the truth, and it is the only way that the people that are now so righteous got a toehold in the discourse back in the 1960s. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think maybe the best way for me to summarize uh, my thinking is uh, uh, my, uh, one of the clergymen of my church is fond of wrapping up Sunday service by saying, go lead the gospel with your life. But there's a line from Jefferson that's remarkably similar to that play uh, that, uh, 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 and, and I, I just jotted it down here. It's actually remarkably similar to that aphorism. It is in our lives and not our words that our religion must be read. 1816. So Jefferson's a failed man. Uh, we already stipulated, both of us have elements of our own lives that we don't find to be exemplary. But this is the human condition, but uh, we, can, um, we can seek to do better and find value and those that have done the best with their lives. Thanks to you. I find myself more tolerant as I grow older, partly because I have to look in the mirror of my own inadequacies so often. So thank you, Dave Nikandri. We always turn to you on questions of this sort. You've been listening to a special one-on-one -on -one edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I think this is very important to talk about. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.